welcome to another episode of the SADM Rams Ask a Chair podcast series. My name is Hamza Ajaz, and today I have Dr. Manish Shah, who is the department chair at the Burby Walsh Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Wisconsin Medicine. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely, it's great to be here. Definitely. So, can, let's start at the very beginning. What drew you to the field of emergency medicine? Yeah, you know, emergency medicine is special to me because it's so different than every other field. Right? We are those people that are there for acute illness care. We're the ones that do the diagnostic and emergent therapeutics that I don't think anybody else gets to do. And to me, that's the challenge. That's the fun. That's the, the place where you get to have a huge impact, where you take someone from not knowing what's going on to at least partially knowing what, what's going on, and then get them to the place that they need to be. The other piece I really like about it is we are, we're systems folks, right? So we get to sit there and think about how you work the system such that you can actually not only improve the care of that patient in front of you, but the community and the public health at large. And I don't think really anyone else gets to do that the way we do, whether it's through EMS, whether it's through ED operations, whether it's through health system operations. And, and that just is really meaningful to me. I had the chance when I was in college to be an ED tech, which was a lot of fun and really kind of hard at the same time, but it really just cemented the fact that I love emergency medicine and all aspects around it. And it also convinced me that, you know, these are my people. I felt at home when I was in the ED with the nurses, the docs, the unit clerks, everyone else. And that's a feeling that continues to this day. Yeah. And, you know, those themes of the, the community or the people that you work with is definitely true. It's I would not imagine myself working with any other group of people. You know, in the entire house of medicine, there's so many phenomenal staff members across across different specialties. But the the personalities and then the camaraderie we build and taking care of, you know, an acute resuscitation, uh, I wouldn't trade that for the world. And the fact that you know you do have that ability to figure out what's going on, either reassure the patient, arrange for outpatient follow up, or to find the diagnosis and admit the patient for that. I think that is you know that diagnostic aspect of what we do is significantly um, a, a cerebral process that continues to you know keep me motivated for the last four years of residency so far. Now, talking a little bit more about your specific interests within emergency medicine. So I know you're a recognized expert within geriatric emergency medicine. How, how did you come to identify that this was a niche for you? Yeah, yeah, I really wish I had a great, touching, and phenomenal story that led me to this, but I don't. The, the reality was is that I always knew I was interested in research. As I got more interested in emergency medicine, I discovered emergency medicine research and realized I absolutely love it. And when I was a research fellow, I did the Robert Johnson Clinical Scholars Program, which is now the National Clinical Scholars Program. And my mentors there, as we were talking about exactly where I wanted to shape my career and how I wanted to focus, highlighted the growing population of older adults that come to the emergency department for care. And now, this was 1999. We really weren't doing anything, weren't focused on it. We weren't thinking about how caring for these patients is so different than caring for your average adult. They really showed me, they pointed out to me that this is an opportunity for a researcher. This is an opportunity for a future leader in the field. And I realized they were right. And the more and more I worked on this, the more and more I realized how much we had to do and how much we, we owe our patients and our population to do this, which is how I've really become super passionate about this and focused on this really my entire career. And the other piece from a very kind of strategic standpoint is 
we have an NIH Institute that's very focused on how we care for older adults and how we improve that care, which made funding that much more of a direct connection than some of the areas might be. Okay. All right. Now, you know, you've clearly, you know, done extensive research and you've, you know, very recognized expert as you as you've clearly alluded to now, you know, that makes, makes a lot of sense. In terms of people who don't necessarily have as much experience with, you know, in terms of with taking care of a geriatric population in the emergency department and, and with, you know, a increasing uh, number of geriatric patients in our EDs across the country, what are ways that emergency physicians can improve the care or, you know, for these patient population or be mindful of the nuances of taking care of these patients? Do you have about four or five hours for us to talk about Definitely, this? Definitely, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think that my answer to this in many ways, my answer to a lot of things in life in general, which is you need to go in with a mindset of curiosity, learning, and growth, right? So really, we all need to be always thinking about how can we learn about how to better care for older adults, whether it's things around communication, whether it's around the actual medical issues and the medical conditions, whether it is being cognizant of the psychosocial issues that affect their lives. And, and this just kind of continues along that way. We've got differences in presentation, differences in treatment, dementia, delirium are huge topics, which I think people need to learn better than we actually understand and then make that part of how we care for our patients. And then there becomes those systems level issues, right? We think about our environment. You know, having that 85 year old in the hallway is really not terribly good because basically it's going to bring them to delirium and then that's going to have its own set of downstream negative consequences. And so we need to think about these components of how we deliver care. And that lets you go even beyond us in the emergency department. That becomes a health system level issue, a hospital level issue, a public health issue. But the bottom line to me on this one is you need to go in with this sense of curiosity and growth and say, all right, I have this person in front of me. How can I take care of them to really address all of their needs? Fair. And, you know, the, the needs of a geriatric patient might be a little bit different than a non-geriatric patient. So I appreciate you shining the light on, on some of those issues and ways that we can optimize their care in the EDs. Now, talking a little bit, taking a slight step back about talking about research in general, let's focus that from a resident and student perspective. So what advice would you provide to residents and students in terms of how to get started with doing research or being involved with research? I, I agree 100% with what you're saying, that it is overwhelming, tough, it can be scary, it can be really challenging. If you are that medical student, it's like, huh, maybe I need to learn about this a little bit more. Maybe I need to go, want to go experience this. My bottom line piece is that mentorship is the most important component if you want to develop research or even explore research. The, you want to find a good, strong mentor who has some experience doing research, ideally in a topic that you're interested in, and is interested in mentoring a medical student. And you want to put everything you have into that, your time, your effort, your thought, because you want to show that you're really engaged in this, but if you find that right mentor, that's, that person will be able to do the same for you and help take you through it step by step. Anything you do for the first time is absolutely terrifying. My daughter recently just learned how to drive, which is terrifying for me too, but she didn't know how to do it until she had done it a little bit. I remember as a medical student, 
having the exact same experience. I knew I wanted to do some research on this. I approached the chair where I was a medical student, and they helped grow me through that process of doing some research, and here I am. But the bottom line being, I think mentorship makes all the difference in the world, and if you get a great mentor, you can do anything. Okay. No, I, I could not agree more. The mentorship, both in academic emergency medicine, but just generally in life, in professional development, goes so far. If you don't have the right mentors, if you don't have a mentor, that itself is puts you back. It makes it more difficult to come, overcome obstacles. And it's still possible to overcome them. It just becomes easier when you have someone to help guide along the way. So I definitely agree with the, the aspect of mentorship and research. It's definitely very important. And I, I hear, you know, in a lot of other specialties like orthopedics, ENT, ophthalmology, dermatology, you hear a lot of these other specialties that require a lot of, you know, manuscripts, abstracts, presentations in medical students before they actually enter into their residencies. Whereas for emergency medicine, that isn't necessarily as much of the case. But for the residency students who are involved, you know, or are interested, there's definitely um, ways through mentorship to get involved. Now, I want to take a slight, you know, a pivot a little bit in regards to the traditional form of conducting research, you know, through abstracts and presentations and manuscripts. What are some non-traditional or other alternative avenues, you know, for get for academic scholarship for residency students that you can think of that isn't your standard abstract presentation or a manuscript? I think the point that you bring up, which is really the important one here, is what are the different academic opportunities for medical students, residents, and others? And the key word there is the academic component, right? So, I mean, I'm biased. I think everyone it'd be great if came up with a research topic idea, did the study, wrote an abstract, got a paper into the journals, and went from there. But that isn't right for everybody. The good news is with inverse medicine, really the house of medicine, there are a lot of other things that you can do. You could do a book chapter. You could do blog posts. You could do a systematic review of some sort. I think the question really comes down to the, the medical center resident figuring out what they want to do, where they want to go with this, and then thinking through what are the various options there are out there. The, we've had medical students be very involved in doing literature searches as part of our bigger research team because they want to be involved, they want to do something, they want to see how we do research, but they don't really want to do the full up work themselves of a new project from scratch. But they were absolutely instrumental in doing a new lit search for us. Or they were absolutely instrumental in saying, hey, I'm really interested in this idea. Let me take this data that you've already analyzed for me, and then I will actually write the paper around it. Or I will actually start putting it together and tell a story out of it. And then we can help them actually write that paper out of it. And so I think the, the advantage is, particularly if you think of this more broadly as an academic in, endeavor and an academic enterprise is there are very there are a large number of different types of opportunities that you could delve into you just need to talk to that mentor you just need to talk to that person that you're working with and and kind of suss out which way they have needs and which way you can help contribute to those needs i would say the key pieces is that when you develop that relationship then it's really all upon that medical student or resident to go all in and do an incredible job and the best job that they can to show that, to show their level of engagement, to show that they really care about this and are want to be part of that team as well. Okay. 
That's very helpful. Thank you for that. And I, and I hope that you know the mentors listening on this are mindful of the different ways, the creative ways to get involved with academic scholarship, as well as the residents students listening that they all remember as well that it's not just your traditional uh, abstracts and manuscripts. And that is great, of course, you know, but there's other ways that if you're intimidated or not necessarily that is not necessarily your cup of tea, that there are other alternative ways of sales still being engaged. Now, talking a little bit about SAM and the overall organization, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you're the SAM Foundation president, if I recall. I'm or president elect. I, there you I, go. I have a couple more months before I become president. <laughs> there you go. Congratulations for that. In Thank first you. Place. Uh, now, let's talk about what SAM overall as a national organization can do to support residents and students in terms of conducting research. Right. SAM is really focused in terms of how to help support our students, our residents, our fellows, and our faculty to do academic endeavors, whether it's research, whether it's education-related. And, and it really, in my mind, falls into a couple of buckets. One is just the advocacy for doing research. You need to have people out there that are showing, this is valuable, this is important, this is the way we need to grow and develop. And that's a big piece of what SAEM does. Second to that, then, is actually making the resources available so that you can do that research. We have a ton of grants. We had eight, about 850,000 in grants or so last year, I believe. We have sessions at the SAEM meetings. We have sessions that are occurring virtually on a regular basis to help provide that support to the student resident, junior faculty, more advanced faculty that's out there that needs that type of support and assistance to grow. Honestly, I listen to some of these, the research learning series, and I learn from them because there are lots of areas I don't have any expertise, and if I listen to it, I get to learn. Another component of, of what SAM also does is presents those opportunities to present the research. That's the beauty of the annual meeting, and going there and doing your poster or your oral and standing there and getting feedback and learning other opportunities, other options, other ideas around the projects, because that's what then allows science to continue continually advance and without that opportunity also you don't have an opportunity to learn how you could do it better and so to me that's almost a third bucket in terms of SAEM does for our field to support the resident student education or student research and research education okay all right thank you so what I'm hearing is you know at the annual meeting there's opportunities both from a didactic learning perspective as well as the opportunity to present and then over the course of the year, there's various grants that are available for, for varying stages of your training uh, in terms of uh, for funding and for looking for ways to continue your, your growth and development. So I appreciate that. Thank you for sponsoring all that stuff that you guys do within uh, the SAM Foundation as well. So thank you. Now, we're going to transition a little bit now and talk about the Address the Elephant in the Room. We just had the recent MASH uh, re uh, report come out, you know, that there was over 500 plus unfilled spots in emergency medicine residencies. Uh, and a couple of years ago, there was the, the 2020 EM workforce report predicting a surplus of over, I think, seven, ten thousand 10,000 uh, EM physicians uh, by 2030. So let's talk about both of those and let's try to parse it out and figure out. Let's want to start off your thoughts with the, the MASH results and then we can go to the workforce report afterwards. I think the match results and the workforce report in many ways are actually very intertwined. Yeah. And I'm actually going to start with the workforce report because it'll actually talk into the story, I think, a little bit for the match. To me, the problem with the workforce results, the workforce report, is that I've seen a ton of reports like that in my career put out by the AMA, AAMC, various other organizations. And I'm not sure I've ever seen any that are accurate. 
right? I mean, I remember reports when I was just finishing medical school that was like, there's going to be tens of thousands of physicians that we don't, you know, have jobs for. And then, you know, five years later, it's like, we're going to be short tens of thousands of physicians. And so, I mean, I take all these reports with a little bit of grain of salt. Ultimately, these reports are driven by the assumptions they make. In the workforce report, I think they assumed a 3% attrition rate. And they've shown that the attrition rate is actually probably closer to 5%. There are lots of other parts of the report where I, when I read it, that led me to question how accurate it can necessarily be. There are a lot of people that get alternate jobs of other sorts. And they're suddenly, even though they are an emergency physician working clinically, they're only working four shifts a month. They're only working six shifts a month. And so all of those play into why I think the report is inaccurate. And I think there are going to be jobs that are out there. The other piece I think is a huge piece is the specialty emergency medicine continue to evolve, right? We now have people that are EM critical care. We have EM palliative care. We have EMS folks who spend a decent proportion of their life in the field, not in the ED working. I'm not even sure what the next role or position will be, but all of these will continue to evolve. We can continue to change. And so I think that from the standpoint of, are there jobs out there? I'm confident that there are jobs out there. You may not get to work in you know, the ultimate ideal place in your mind that you'd love to live, but that's true about any job. That's true about any profession that's out there. Now, coming to the match that occurred, I think it's really hard to parse that out. And here at the chairs meeting, that's gonna be a big part of our discussion. I think personally that it's a combination of a lot of different factors. I think part of it's us still coming out of COVID. I think about the medical students in my institution, many of them didn't see the emergency department until their fourth year time down in the emergency department, at which point it was a little too late to move to emergency medicine. You think about the way the media has portrayed emergency medicine through the COVID pandemic of it being absolutely horrible and just overwhelming and absolutely stressful. Um, I think that probably has had an influence on the students thinking, do I want that to be my career? I think that the students are still trying to figure out what post-COVID world is going to look like and how they want to fit into that world. Ultimately, when I think about what we're going to do about it, we just need to get out there and advocate for emergency medicine and what an awesome world it is, what an awesome place it is. And through that, I think we're going to convince people to, to come to this field, be part of such an awesome thing to get to do, as well as overcome a lot of the, the, the negativity that's out there that's not necessarily uh, accurate or maybe not necessarily accurate for everybody. I mean, my wife's a physician. She's great at what she does. But the chaos in the emergency department, which I see as totally organized and making perfect sense, would make her insane. I also wouldn't want to do her job because that's not my personality. And that's really what I think it's all about is showing people what's out there, how great we are, what an opportunity it is. And um, that I think will partially level it out. But I think the other question really is, is we need to have a, a, be a little introspective and think about what does it mean to educate and what, what do we really need to make sure we provide to our trainees and make sure we're really doing that and make sure we do it in a very high quality manner. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. What I wanted to talk about is, you know, you mentioned advocacy, right? So 
I think that's a huge part of this particular issue and within our specialty overall. It is part of what we do. We are patient advocates. We advocate for our working environments in various capacities. And the same with this extent as well. So, you know, advocating on behalf of our colleagues in our specialty to provide, you know, be able to have sustainable, appropriate working conditions so we are able to provide exceptional care for the patients that, that they deserve. And then on the same type of talk, you know, circling back, you mentioned earlier mentorship in regards to research. I think the same thing applies here for our students as well, where if they're not getting exposed to emergency medicine at up until the fourth year or late into the third year or early fourth year, sometimes it is too late. So what as can we do as mentors, you know, essentially to provide the first year of medical students, the second year of medical students to get exposure in so that they're more aware as well. I think those are the biggest things that are not necessarily the biggest things, but a large, a large components of what we should be doing as faculty, as senior residents, as fellows, junior faculty to talk about, to talk to these uh, junior learners and figure out ways that they can still be engaged and have a appropriate insight into what it is to be an emergency physician. I think you make the point perfectly. I think it is very much getting engaged, even really at the undergrad level with folks and saying, this is emergency medicine. Most college campuses have, you know, a medical school, some sort of interest group and being involved with them. Being involved with our emergency medicine interest groups for the medical students and even more broadly, just being involved in medical education so that these students can see us there being the awesome teachers that we are, being the great mentors that we are, being involved and engaged. And then from that, they'll say, hey, I want to be like so-and-so. I remember the first emergency physician I shadowed as a medical student, and it was amazing because he what knew everything about anything, at least compared to how I felt as a first-year med student. He was so engaged, so caring about the medical students. And that really imprinted on me and really meant a lot to me. And so if we do more of that, that's going to help a lot. The other part of the advocacy is really with government and with the regulators, right? I mean, we need to advocate for our patients. What's high-quality care? How do we ensure patients get the care that we need? Because that will also help us because... We won't have that moral distress of, oh, I can't get so-and-so the care I need to get for them. Um, but that's part of the beauty of academic medicine, too, because we actually get that opportunity to do it. You can do it in community practice. You can do it anywhere else. But I think that you know, academic medicine is particularly structured so that you can have these multiple interests and multiple areas of uh, impact. Thank you so much for that. And I think that just about wraps up our time today. Dr. Shaw, thank you for you know, taking the time out of your schedule to chat with us today. I really appreciate you sharing insight. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great being here.